0: As soon as possible in the coming weeks, we will be introducing mandatory PCR testing at the airport for people returning to Canada. Travelers will then have to wait for up to three days at an approved hotel for their test results at their own expense, which is expected to be more than $2,000. Those with negative test results will then be able to quarantine at home under significantly increased surveillance and enforcement. Those with positive tests will be immediately required to quarantine in designated government facilities to make sure they're not carrying variants of potential concern.
1: Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Solutions Watch, and this week we are going to be discussing a developing story that is taking place in my home and native land of Canada, the contours of which can be gleaned from a couple of news releases from the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms at JCCF. Dot ca. Firstly, one from January 29th of 2021, federal government faces imminent lawsuit over unlawful confinement of returning Canadian travelers, which notes that the Justice Centre today announced that immediate legal action is being prepared against the Trudeau government over the declaration that Canadian residents will be subjected to mandatory quarantine at their own expense, after returning from international travel, regardless of their negative COVID status. And these measures are a blatant violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But there is an interesting development that has taken place in recent days to this story, which we can get from a another JCCF.ca news release. Federal government delays plan to forcibly confine travelers after public bash, backlash and threat of litigation which notes that the Justice Center is pleased that the Trudeau government is delaying its plan to charge returning travelers $2,000 for forced hotel quarantine in response to public backlash and the threat of litigation. Now, there are obviously many more details to this story and more resources that will, as always, be linked up uh, in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com. But to talk more about the details of this story, we're joined today by John Carpe of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. John, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today.
0: Glad to be with you
1: and your viewers. Let's start, since this is your first time on the program, why don't you talk a little bit about the Justice Centre and your association to it?
0: So the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms was founded uh, 10 years ago, going on 11 years, uh, founded in 2010 with the purpose of defending the Charter Rights and Freedoms of Canadians, when those are threatened or attacked or violated by any level of government, whether it's a federal, provincial, municipal, or even a governmental authority, uh, like a university, a law society, college of physicians and surgeons, we are 100% funded by voluntary donations from Canadians, and we provide the legal services free of charge to the to our clients, to the the cases that we take on, to the people, and we have grown quite rapidly. We now have uh, nine, uh, soon to be ten, full time staff lawyers, and as well as uh, administrative staff and communication staff. And we are taking on court cases all over Canada. Especially, with the the lockdowns, have generated a ton of work for us in the past uh, ten or eleven months. And um, so that's, that's it in a, in a nutshell.
1: I was going to say, I'm sure that part of your growth recently has to do with the uh, unprecedented breaches of Canadian constitutional charter rights and freedoms that have taken place over the past year. And on, in that regard, I'm sure there are no end to the number of cases that you could take on board. H- what kind of criteria do you use to determine what cases you are going to take on?
0: We look at winnability is uh, one factor, but not the only one. So, I mean, does do we have a strong legal case here, or are we go- going to, uh, you know, lose? So, for example, if somebody has been issued a $1,200 ticket for peacefully protesting outside, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty strong legal case because there's no rational scientific basis to. Issue a twelve hundred dollar ticket to uh, somebody that's just outside with with other people, uh, you know, expressing their opinions. Whether you're protesting against racism or protesting against lockdowns, whatever the cause, you know. Conversely, if somebody was uh, you know violent or abusive or uh, was you know interfering with other people or whatever, if it's not a strong case, we're not going to take it on. Uh, We also limit our cases strictly to fighting governments. So sometimes you see, you know, banks, corporations, Walmart, doing things that you think are wrong, but those are private entities. And so we tell people, you know, you can sue for wrongful dismissal. You can file your own human rights complaint, but we don't litigate against private entities. And um, the the other thing is just limited resources. So we... Cannot uh, We're getting dozens of queries every week. And for a lot of the ticket cases, we can take those on uh, because you know it's kind of a wait and see. We'll enter a not guilty plea and ask the Crown for uh, all of its evidence. That's known as disclosure. So we ask the Crown for disclosure. We set a trial date. So a lot of those can kind of be put off into the future. Uh, but some of the bigger cases, we cannot take on as many as we want.
1: So let's talk specifically about this issue with uh, returning Canadian travelers and the issue of unlawful confinement of those travelers against their will and at their expense. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this story. Uh, Fill us in on the details and how you came to be associated with it.
0: We started to hear reports in late January. Uh, In particular, there was a a lady in Edmonton, Nikki Mathis, and she was uh, detained. And the government did not like her negative COVID test. It said it was the wrong kind and it needed to be a PCR test, which is rather ironic because the PCR test has been resoundingly denounced by medical experts and infectious disease specialists as unreliable And it was never designed to diagnose COVID in the first place. And it has a false positive rate as high as 90%. Although you could argue from that point that, well, false positives as high as 90. If you've got a negative on the PCR test, uh, you know, maybe it's highly likely that you really are negative. But um, what's not been explained by the federal government is why it's not okay for people to quarantine at home. But to answer your question, how we found out about it was just the the news reports and and then people started contacting us. And we've now had well over a dozen people uh, contacting us with their own stories about how they were just apprehended at the airport, taken away in a white van to a secret location, not provided an opportunity to contact a lawyer, cut off from their friends um, and, and family. You can't communicate with anybody which again, they, where's the science, right? We're not going to commun- we're not going to spread COVID by way of a, a phone call or a Skype call. It's like, oh no, you can't contact your family. That's creepy. That sounds like a repressive, third world dictatorship or some communist, Nazi, whatever type of regime that's going to lock you up. And and then the secret location. I mean, if you're accused of murder, uh, you have a right to a lawyer. And you have a right to, uh, uh, if you're if you are detained, you're a, you have the right to have that detention reviewed by a judge who looks at it and says, okay, they can continue to confine you until trial, or no, they have to let you go. And here, there's this isn't even reviewed by a judge; you just get locked up. So we found out about it through all the reports, and now we are um, we've taken on, I think we're up to about a half dozen clients. And we're working on a court action uh, and those clients are swearing affidavits, you know, telling their stories about how they've been locked up. As you say
1: it, I mean, there's no possible justification for the secret detention of these people and and preventing them from from contacting the outside world. Again, as you say, that's even if you were accused of murder, you would still receive those basic rights. So it's so strange uh, I can't conceive of any possible reason that the Canadian government could give for such uh, actions, which brings to my mind the question of have any of your clients, ha- have any of their specific stories been reported on by any outlets or journalists that you know of?
0: Yeah, the the Western Standard, which is an online publication, uh, they, they have at least two stories up. Uh, but the media all over, the, the Toronto Sun had a story in the past few days. So there there are even the mainstream media are starting to report on this. And, uh, you know, the stories are coming out. And I guess so one good thing is, you know, so far, knock on wood, I don't want to give the government any ideas, but the government's not trying to silence people once they're released, which although, you know, with this fear-based public policy and just the uh, unnecessary hysteria about the COVID virus uh, wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's the same federal government that is seriously talking about censoring speech on the Internet to correct misinformation or things that people might find hurtful, which is just very disconcerting and the government is, is moving in that direction to get Google and Facebook uh, and, and YouTube to do its dirty work for it and start censoring speech. And that's that is totalitarian. I mean that is a repressive regime, whether it's you know um, communist North Korea, Communist China, theocratic Iran, uh, some anti-communist, right-wing banana republic, uh, it, it doesn't matter what the f- it doesn't matter what the ideology is of the regime. This is just pure repression when you've got um, you've got governments that are moving towards censoring, speech on the internet. And I apologize, it's off topic. but
1: Well, it, I think it's all related. And as you say, it forms the context of what we're seeing going on. Um, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the actions that the JCCF has been involved in. For example, I understand you wrote a letter to the uh, transport minister uh, as this story was developing in late January. And uh, that will be linked up in the show notes for people to read as well. But give us the gist of that letter and the threatened legal action.
0: So, three-page letter, and we talk about how this violates the Charter mobility rights, which is Charter Section six, which is the right to freely enter and leave Canada. Now, this is not a total ban uh, in the way that, say, North Korea would, you know, shoot anybody trying to leave the wonderful paradise utopia that they've created there. Uh, so, it's not North Korea, but it certainly is a a partial violation that the government is now saying, sure, you can leave Canada, but if you return, you're going to be subjected to a $2,000 fee for getting uh, forcibly involuntarily locked up somewhere. That's a serious uh, serious impediment on, uh, on your freedom to travel compared to, say, a more minor impediment where they say, well, we want you to take a COVID test when you land in Canada, and uh, you have to quarantine at home for 14 days. Those are also Uh, violations of charter freedoms but on a much smaller scale so in our letter we talk about how this violates the charter mobility rights and it violates the uh, charter freedom to be free from arbitrary imprisonment the right to counsel uh, and other legal rights that you typically have if you're accused of a crime and here the crime seems to be (laughs) A Canadian that's going to come back to Canada seems to be the crime in question, but you don't have the same rights that you do if you're actually accused of a crime. So we explain that to the federal government, and we talk about how this is unnecessary. Uh, In our view, there's no justification for it. And uh, then we warn that if these policies are pushed ahead, then uh, we will sue And that leads me to a a last but but very significant point is that people have been arrested and detained and locked up uh, without this policy even being in force, which is, again, that's the hallmark of a repressive regime where law is kind of invented on the fly by the health minister, the prime minister, the president. uh, in, In a repressive regime, laws are not duly passed by parliament and reviewed by the elected representatives of the people through a lengthy process, and it's lengthy on purpose. So we have deliberation, we have debate, uh, we have the opposition parties have an opportunity to put forward amendments, which even if rejected, at least we had debate. And then you have the second reading, third reading, royal assent, and eventually proclaimed into force. And there's a reason we have that long, lengthy, cumbersome process. It's to protect the rights and freedoms of people, and it's also to ensure that we have the best possible laws as a result of informed debate and debate over time and debate with public input. What we have now is, and it's frightening at the provincial level as well in the Canadian provinces, the provincial governments, they write laws on the fly and we have government by news conference, and we have the chief medical officer announces, oh, restaurants open, restaurants closed, restaurants open, restaurants closed, gyms open, gyms closed, churches shut entirely, churches limited to capacity, schools open, schools closed. There's no there's no democracy. This is a medical dictatorship when you have no input from the federal parliament, the elected MPs, and on the provincial level, you've got the MLAs uh, – they don't. They have some indirect behind-the-scenes say, I suppose, uh, but there's no democracy. So that's the other big point on this: is that people have been arrested and detained, even in the absence of any policy that has been duly elected that that might have the force of law. So on that basis alone, all of these detentions are illegal. And
1: that brings us, I guess, to the latest developments in this story. Because, uh, as as you note, and again, I'll link up the uh, the news release that apparently the Trudeau government is delaying its plan to to enact this policy. But of course, that comes with two major caveats. The first being, as you say, people have already been detained. So clearly this is already being enacted regardless of the policy. And secondly, from my reading of the media coverage of this story, it seems to be, at least the way they are framing it, that this is essentially a little bit of a delay so that uh, the airlines will have time to repatriate the snowbirds and everyone will have a chance to get back to Canada before they start the mandatory quarantine, something along those lines. But it seems from the media coverage, at any rate, that this is going ahead. It's just a question of a couple of weeks.
0: Well, it's, I think the process may have unfolded. This is speculation on my part, but I think that uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau and the political advisors decided that this was uh, a good idea and perhaps didn't get proper legal review. And now it's like, oh, you know, Prime Minister, we have this thing in Canada known as the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and its purpose is to protect citizens from government. And you can't just, you know, uh, have, a, have a news conference and declare something into being. Um, so maybe they're looking at it more from a legal or charter perspective, and they're having their Justice Department review it. Uh, but even then uh, if if they proceed with this uh, they will have to answer for it in court because the big question is why should Canadians not be allowed to quarantine at home why are we using the notoriously unreliable and inaccurate PCR tests that the government insists on and you know in the bigger context as well you've got international travelers purportedly uh, responsible for you know one percent of the 1% or 2% of the COVID spread. So why is this a problem? I mean, sick people generally don't uh, travel. It, I, there are exceptions. I suppose you could, you know, maybe you want to hop, maybe you're feeling sick, but you want to hop on a plane to see a, a dying parent that lives in another province or another country. But generally, uh, if, if you're feeling sick, you've got your health insurance, uh, and you cancel your flight, you don't go. um, and then there's another big scientific issue there, which is that of asymptomatic spread. The federal and provincial governments, and I think most governments in the world, are most of the lockdown policies are based on the notion that people who are not sick, people without symptoms that they are dangerous spreaders. And so we all have to live in fear. We all have to behave as though you and I and anybody watching this, we have to behave as though everybody is a dangerous spreader of the virus. So we all have to live in fear of each other. We all have to stay six feet away from each other. Uh, It's illegal right now in Canada and most provinces to have a friend over for dinner. That's not allowed. Although you can meet up at a shopping mall and be less than six feet apart. Nobody will notice because there's, the shopping malls are full. You know, sometimes churches are closed and restaurants are closed, but then the shopping malls are full. And uh, instead of sitting down at a table, people stand side by side and they eat their burger together because the tables in the shopping malls have been cordoned off with this uh, crime scene, yellow police caution tape. But the whole thing is founded on the notion of asymptomatic spread, and the Justice Centre is going to be challenging that in our court actions. Uh, we're going to have expert medical evidence and uh, testimony, expert medical reports saying this is not true. There is some asymptomatic spread. Uh, sometimes people, uh, they're in the pre-symptomatic stage, so they, they are sick, but the symptoms aren't out yet. There could be a little bit of spread there. But there's no need for the entire population to be treated like vile, disease-bearing creatures, which is what the current lockdowns are based on. So that's another thing that the federal government will have to prove in court, that all of these measures are necessary. The onus is on them to show us the science that, in their opinion, warrants all of this. There's so much about this
1: that is unprecedented, including the forcible detainment of asymptomatic spreaders and all of this. But uh, uh, then again, I speak from the layman's perspective. From your perspective, is there any legal precedent for these types of moves that are being made right now?
0: The only ones, well, there's several in Canadian history. We had the, uh, in, during World War One, we had the internment of uh, so-called enemy aliens. So that would have been, uh, Members of various ethnicities who came to Canada as immigrants from what was then the Austria-Hungary Empire. Uh, so we had some detainment in World War One. We had people locked up, uh, f- perhaps in some cases for several years on suspicion that they were dangerous, uh, you know, sympathizers. So, uh, the fear is is interesting. It's a common thread, right? There's a war on. And Canada's on the side of Britain and France. And now you've got these immigrants that have come from European countries that were uh, um, against us in the war. In World War II, we had the uh, internment in camps of hundreds of Italian Canadians, uh, because Italy, at least in the first part of the war, was on the side of of Germany and Japan. Uh, And On a far larger scale, and I think worse violations, we had Japanese Canadians uh, who were a large community in British Columbia that were forcibly taken away and locked up in camps in the interior of the province. And in many cases, their property was confiscated, their fishing boats were confiscated and sold off, and many of these people never received any compensation. They were locked away for years. And this was after the RCMP had advised the federal government that they had already rounded up a very small number of Japanese Canadians that they did think were actually a threat to national security. The RCMP said, hey, we've, we've tracked those people down. We've got them. The rest of the Japanese Canadians, there's no danger. And yet you have fear in wartime. And so the government uh, of Canada uh, committed these, I guess, human rights violations, crimes against humanity against the Japanese Canadians. Then we had the October crisis in uh, Quebec in 1970 with the FLQ Front de Libération du Québec that was uh, violent and terrorist. And, you know, uh, and they had kidnapped two people, murdered one of them. So we had the War Measures Act in force. But I have heard from Canadians, older Canadians, that aside from a police presence in Quebec, uh, for most Canadians, life went on as normal, as usual, throughout those several months that the War Measures Act was in force. So those are the precedents, but now we have massive violations of our freedom to move, to travel, to uh, protest peacefully outside. Uh, And I'm not a fan. I don't think that looting and burning is is legitimate free expression, but I do support uh, and the Justice Center defends the right to peacefully you know, without violence, without, uh, without property damage to peacefully protest, uh, is, is a fundamental charter freedom, our freedom of association. It was illegal over Christmas to spend time with friends and family at Christmas time. Uh, and now it's getting escalated to, uh, getting forcibly detained. And we have the government planning to censor internet speech. So, I can't think of any charter freedoms that are left that are not either they, they have been violated or there is a threat to violate them because up until now, our freedom of expression has not been curtailed. But now the federal government saying, oh, well, we got to curb that, too. We have to stop the misinformation, which is incredible. It sounds nice. I mean, who isn't against misinformation, right? But the issue is, do you and I as responsible adults have the freedom and the human dignity to determine for ourselves what is true, what is false, what is good information, what is misinformation, what is hateful, what is not hateful, what is right, what is wrong. Do we not have in a free society, you're an adult, you get to decide that in a repressive regime or totalitarian state, the government decides on your behalf for your own good, of course, to protect you from really bad ideas, to protect you from misinformation. So, you know, it's always a good pretext. You know, we have to save the people from misinformation, or we have to save the people from hurt feelings or from uh, hatred, and uh, this is where the Canada's federal government is going.
1: That is precisely the point, and I've pointed it out increasingly in my work in recent years, although I I think it's been a, a constant of the work that I do, is that, yes, there, from the perspective of the authoritarians, there's the infantilization of the public, who must be told what to think and what to do, and the prescribed limits of their reality, whereas I treat my audience as rational adult human beings who can make their own choices. I don't tell them what to do or what to think. I present information that is theirs to do with as they please. And anyone who would co- seek to come in between myself and other rational adult human beings in an exchange of ideas is an authoritarian and a tyrant by definition. Which, um, just, uh, yes, uh, I do this for a living. I look at this information every single day. And, but uh, laying it out on the table, as you just did, disgusts me to the core of my being. To see what is happening right now and to see the tyrants coming out and taking off the mask is truly upsetting. And all of the precedents you list there, I suppose, are relevant, but they're not exactly the type of precedents that I think the Canadian government would like to point to. Oh, yes. Well, when we interned those Italian Canadians or those Japanese Canadians, yeah, that that gives us the right to do it in this context. They would never point to those precedents because they are so disgusting. And we understand that historic, the, the, the finger of history has been pointed at those as... Blemishes on the Canadian record, not some sort of great, shining example of what the Canadian government can do. Which I suppose begs the fundamental question of all of this, which is uh, for the underinformed Canadians in the crowd or for people internationally who might not know, what is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how has this magical piece of paper not magically protected people from being detained by their government?
0: I love the question. You know, freedom exists ultimately in the human heart, the human mind, the human spirit. Now, there's a lot of really healthy debate that that has taken place and will continue to take place uh, about the shift that Canada made in 1982. We shifted from a British system of parliamentary sovereignty where basically, if you didn't like a law, your recourse was the democratic process, so, write to your MP and say you want the law changed, and if the MP is not going to do it, well, then, you know, vote them out next election and vote in somebody better. But you could not, prior to 1982, uh, in Canada, you could not go to court and get a judge to rule that a law was unconstitutional and strike it down. That's a U.S. system that they've had for well over 200 years. And so in the United States, you can go to court and say, well, the American constitution or the state constitution or, or both they protect my, uh, my freedom of speech, uh, my freedom of religion, so on and so forth. And you have judges striking down laws or upholding laws. Um, So what we did, what Canada did in 1982 is we switched uh, with the adoption of the charter and making that part of our constitution. We switched from a British style system of parliamentary sovereignty to an American style What's called a constitutional democracy, and so this is where the courts play a role in the laws. And a court, you know, unelected, unaccountable judge, uh, can strike down a law as uh, as unconstitutional. Now, I think we have less freedom today with the charter than what we did in 1982. I'm not sure if that's because of the charter necessarily. So. My point is this, the really big issue is, do people understand freedom? Do they love freedom? Do they cherish freedom? Do they actually want to live in a free society? And if people are not that fond of it and they are, uh, you know, they like being told what to do and what to think. And some people are like that. They don't want the responsibility uh, of, of having to think a lot and make decisions and a lot of people are quite happy. They flick on the six o'clock news and they listen to their chief medical officer, and they accept every word that she says as gospel truth. You know, there's just no questioning that. Well, maybe, you know, uh, things like you know the issue of asymptomatic spread. I mean, where is the science on that? I have asked the Alberta government, show me the science that you rely on for your belief that asymptomatic people are dangerous spreaders of the virus. Show me the science. You get no answer. I can give you dozens of examples of questions I've asked. You get no answer at all. And so the fundamental problem really, uh, you could say that the government violations of the Charter are maybe symptoms of a deeper problem where people have become so accustomed to comfort and convenience and just kind of living in their own living their own lives, and a lot of people don't care about freedom, because a lot of Canadians, I'm sad to say, they support all of this stuff, every lockdown measure. You know, you hear comments like, "Well, those people shouldn't have been traveling anyway. Why, why do you need to leave Canada?" It's like oh, because I'm a human being and I'm an adult and I believe in freedom, and so if I want to leave Canada, I should be able to do that, and I should be able to come back to Canada without. You know, okay, fine. Have a passport check at at the border. You know, but I I should be able to return to my own country without having to put aside two thousand dollars and spend three days locked up somewhere.
1: Again, I don't. I don't know how to explain that to people who don't fundamentally understand it. If you don't understand how important what is happening right now is, I would say you probably never will. Um, But I do think a lot of people do understand that. And uh, I'll commend uh, the audience's attention to a uh, post that you co-wrote with uh, Lisa Bildy. COVID restrictions are the most severe violation of human rights Canadians have faced. And it's time to fight back, which starts by noting that faced with the most severe, long-lasting violations of human rights and fundamental freedoms in Canadian history, some Canadians have drawn their line in the sand. And I will let people read through uh, that post for, for more details, I think. Uh, that will resonate, I imagine, with a lot of my audience. It certainly does with me. Um, As a voluntarist, I don't think that my fundamental, inalienable human rights come from any piece of paper. But we do live under a system, supposedly, of the rule of law. And these are the rules. But, oh, by the way, they can all be thrown out at any sort of declared emergency. So they are not worth the paper they are written on, unless there is some sort of process for some sort of redress of grievances. So I... I commend your efforts at the very least for drawing attention to the fact that tyrants are acting like tyrants. I suppose it remains to be seen whether there will be justice to be found here, Um, but that's part of the process. And at the very least, we can get more people aware of what is happening and draw attention to these issues so that we can begin the real societal debate that I think will be the most important aspect of this. Because as you say, if people are happy enough with it and support these measures, then they will probably be enacted regardless of what the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom says or doesn't say. So as I say, I think your efforts are important and you certainly do talk the talk. A lot of people talk the talk. Not a lot of people walk the walk. So I will let my audience do their due diligence on the Justice Centre for themselves, read through your materials, see if they do support your efforts and what you're doing. If they do, and again, we'll direct them to jccf.ca, but if they do support what you are doing, how can they support your work in general and your work specifically on this issue.
0: Well, we we have the 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 nine soon to be 10 staff lawyers that are working long hours, you know, taking on dozens, uh, we might be into the hundreds now if you include all of these ticket cases, right? Where somebody got a $1200 ticket for violating a health order. We've taken on so many of those. And but the reason we're able to carry out the work is because people donate money. And uh, our support is very broad-based, so we get uh, uh, about a fifth of our revenues are coming in in the form of uh, donations of $200 and less, and another fifth in the uh, $200 to $1,000 range, and another fifth of our revenues in the $1,000 to $10,000, and another fifth in the $10,000 to uh, to fifty thousand, and then another fifth, uh, we have some foundation grants that are larger. So it's kind of we're getting support at all levels, and I always tell people, you know your hundred dollar donation by itself does almost nothing. However, when you get uh, three or four thousand people each kicking in a hundred bucks, suddenly you've got enough to hire two or three full- time lawyers. So we're grateful for all the support that we get. People can donate online at uh, www.jccf.ca. We issue an official tax receipt. Um, So that's, of course, valuable for for people. You enclose that with your your annual taxes and you kind of get a partial refund on your donation is what it boils down to. And um, the more support we get, the more lawyers we're going to hire, the more... Uh, Cases we're going to take on because I I think we're we're 10 and a half months into this. This isn't some uh, temporary flatten the curve. This is kind of a permanent state. If we don't fight back, uh, these freedoms will be lost forever and our children and grandchildren will not even know what it's like to live in a free society. They'll be accustomed, you know, from childhood onwards to have the chief medical officer uh, control your life and uh, dictate your life to you once a week by way of a news conference all in some effort to, uh, all in a futile attempt to uh, to avoid a virus, which has never been successful in human history, to, uh, uh, to try to completely avoid any virus.
1: Well, my regular audience does not need to be told how incredibly important this is and the types of precedents that are being set right now. So As always, the most important thing is what can we do about it? And one potential is to support the Justice Center specifically in the work you're doing. Another broader aspect of this is simply to be the voice of public backlash that will hopefully delay and delay and delay until they eventually have to cancel their plans because as i've noted before uh, there are trial balloons that are set up we're going to start doing this oh the public doesn't like it oh sorry that was just a plan we're not going to do that after all so your voice does make a difference at this time and i want everyone out there to to be aware of that if you raise bloody murder about this and scream from the top of your lungs that you're not going to take it if you kick up a stink then this may be delayed forever and eventually shelved. If not, it will probably proceed as planned. So um, I I hope people take that aspect of this into consideration as well. All right, John Carpe, there's so much to talk about, but I think we're going to leave it there for today. As I say, I will direct people to um, your website generally, but also the specific links that I talked about in our conversation that will be in the show notes at CorbettReport.com. Thank you very much for your time and your efforts.
0: Thanks for having me on your show, and uh, perhaps we'll chat again in future... I hope so.